As I look at uh, finance uh, and uh, so forth, money and theology, Bible and so forth and so on, it is perhaps the single most uh, mentioned topic in the Bible. Uh, it's a lot of things about money, wealth, possessions. Welcome to the Faith Without Fear podcast, a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Redlands, California. This podcast is hosted by Senior Pastor Sean Zambros and Associate Pastor Nick Quint. In this episode, they are joined again by Reverend Robert Wilkins to talk about spirituality, reparations, and the quest for beneficial banking. Welcome back to the Faith Without Fear podcast uh, with Senior Pastor Sean Zambros and Associate Pastor Nick Quinton. We are joined today by one of our dear friends, a minister, a managing principal of the HIIP group, a man of many talents, many degrees, many uh, experiences, our friend Robert Wilkins, and we are just delighted to have you back with us. And for those of you who want to hear the really awesome longer story about Robert's background, his ministry and his education, all that, we encourage you to go pause the episode, listen to uh, episode 29 of the Faith Without Fear podcast, and then come back and pick up where you've left off because that episode will give you kind of a little more insight into who Robert is and where Robert kind of comes from. But today we are just delighted to have Robert back with us to talk far more about what he has been doing in the San Francisco Bay Area as it relates to banking and justice and economics. And, you know, let's face it, there's a bit of theology mixed in there as well. So Robert, thank you for coming back to join Pastor Sean and I on the Faith Without Fear podcast. Thank you. And good to see you all uh, again. I'm not sure if we met last year or in this year because time seems to be moving so fast I can't, um, I can't keep up with it. Everybody wanted to get 2020 behind them. And it certainly is behind us now because we're now scrambling to try and get done the things that we want to in 2021 because it's almost summertime. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think we were together in 2021, but it was early. And uh, in fact, I know it was, yeah, uh, yeah. 2021, but it was, yes. uh, but it was early. Yes. And uh, we've made a lot of progress since then. Uh, um, many of us have our shots and we're getting out into the world. And uh, that's good news. And summer looks like it's going to be more like summer than yes. last summer, where we just sat and looked out our windows and pretended like we were maybe going to go somewhere. So maybe right. we'll places this summer. Right. So great to have you back. And so uh, last time you kind of gave us a, a broad kind of landscape of what you're doing with Spur up in the, up in the Bay Area. Uh, there's so much going on with that. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us just the brief rundown of kind of your ministry work as it relates to this new kind of paradigm of banking, because often we think of theology, ministry, banking is kind of separate things. You know, you, you're a little, you do a little bit over here, you do a little bit over there. But for you and your ministry and your calling, it seems like you've taken both ideas and kind of put them together. So would you mind just kind of breaking that down a little bit for us? Well, yes, um, uh, I'd, be, I'd be glad to. And I'm glad that you did, in fact, mention uh, SPUR, which is the San Francisco Planning and Urban Research 
organization. We're an urban planning uh, think tank. We just completed a three-year uh, research and um, policy development uh, project that includes the nine counties of the Bay Area taking a look at uh, the opportunities and possibilities and recommendations for housing, transportation, environmental resiliency, and governance for the next 50 years with the idea of continuing the um, wild prosperity that this region knows, but also with a mind to close the uh, wealth and opportunity gap that does plague this area. It is at one and the same time, one of the most wealthy regions in the world, anchored by Silicon Valley and a lot in the uh, biotech uh, world, and some of the most uh, rampant uh, poverty and deprivation. And interestingly enough, we're beginning to see it a bit more, um, racial strife in uh, this community. So our notion is to look at the next 50 uh, years, propose, uh, recommend and advocate for certain things to take place that preserves that economic prosperity but closes uh, the wealth gap. We will actually do the release of that report and recommendations, or at least a portion of them, tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow is the release date on, um, on that uh, project. I think it's called Opportunity for All or A Place for Everyone, something like that. I forget after all of these. Uh, but again, three years worth of uh, research and planning, and it will come out uh, tomorrow. We don't have any um, overwhelmingly revolutionary ideas about for example, housing, which is a huge uh, issue, not only here, but uh, elsewhere. Uh, we advocate uh, and identify some of the best opportunities that we have to create additional uh, housing at affordable rates and so forth and so on. I think the thing that sets apart what we are doing, in addition to it proposing regional solutions, is the notion that the project, although a planning project that is rooted and grounded in the best urban planning and land use uh, principles, transportation, innovation, and so forth and so on, our starting point in each area has to do with people and the objective of bringing about equity not as an afterthought, but as a beginning. Let me give you uh, an example as it relates to housing. We do a retrospective, we do an analysis. Here's the current uh, situation. We are about all over the state, we're about 2 million houses behind what we need and the growth patterns that we have, despite the fact that our population went down a little bit. We're about 2 million houses shy of adequately housing uh, people in sustainable uh, housing. In the Bay Area, in the nine county area that we are dealing with, looks like 100,000 uh, or so. And so we take a retrospective and say, how did we get here? How did we 
uh, miss, first of all, just building 100,000 housing, of 100,000 housing units. And secondly, who is it that has been and is currently left behind in affordable housing? We find then that there are um, primarily people of color, uh, in particular, African-American uh, people and Latinos very closely uh, behind them by way of not only some prejudice and, and preferential uh, activities in the marketplace, but actually by government policy, both at the national, state, and local level, uh, redlining uh, sanctioned uh, by the government. GI loans and financing that excluded African-American uh, soldiers that came uh, back here left them totally behind. And so what, uh, with that uh, understanding, that becomes our point of departure for researching what the next 50 years need to uh, look like. We have to acknowledge and account for all of the, the, the reality that we got into this uneven uh, situation by way of some intentional practices and activities, and to some extent, even our examining also our own organization's uh, complicitness, complicity uh, with this, whether it was witting, witting or unwitting. You know, what did we do? Did we sit uh, and be silent since we're experts on land use and housing? What did we say when this was uh, going on or did we say nothing? Uh, and how do we make amends for that as we uh, go forward? And so that's the unique uh, aspect of what we uh, bring to the planning exercise as well as the idea that this is in fact a regional uh, issue that no community gets to on its own, even though planning and land use decisions are made at a local level. So if you're in a neighboring town um, 10 miles from um, San Francisco or Oakland where homelessness and lack of affordability is most intense, you could make a decision that says that, well, we don't want multi-story uh, units built in our community and we don't want anything other than single family homes built in our community. So we, have a, we get to choose to have a disproportionate uh, amount of land and uh, restrictions on land use that prohibit the increase of people in my community as well as diversity in my community. Yet, I get to benefit from all, excuse me, of the privilege and all of the advantages that are taking place 10 miles uh, from me, but I don't have to take any responsibility for sharing in uh, the prosperity uh, and the wealth. There are things that we need to, so there are some substantial conversations that will come out of our work. As I said, the land use uh, principles and uh, uh, housing design and those kinds of things are not particularly revolutionary, but what is revolutionary is that we 
make people, and particularly people that have been left behind, the starting point and the ending point for our uh, projects and proposals, and the idea that, yes, indeed, you are your sisters and brothers keepers, and we all are in the same region, not just the same city, but the same uh, region. The traffic, as for example, let's take, let's pick on one of the suburban communities. They're the ones who are creating the traffic because they come to work in San Francisco or Oakland, make a pretty fair amount of money, drive a car, and then create traffic uh, going back. Leave the smog, leave the pollution in um, the less fortunate and more crowded uh, neighborhoods and go home and say, well, not my problem. Well, it doesn't need to be a problem is uh, our point if we acknowledge the fact that yes, we are our sisters and brothers uh, keepers. And that's where the theological and ethical and spiritual dimensions of this whole enterprise uh, come in. First of all, starting with uh, our eye on people and our responsibility to make certain that we create an environment in which that are for people and not just for the idea of the greatest urban design that anybody could think of. Yeah, just even the idea that that you start with those who've been left behind. Uh, nobody does that. No. Nobody no. does that. Yes. And we're quite proud. Uh, we're quite proud of that. And we are, we are under no misapprehension that these will be discussions that will uh, be uh, at times tense uh, and so forth. And the, the, the thing that um, I found in the role that, that I played, I was actually uh, chair of that project. Um, and um, I did, as a result of that, have lots of conversations with elected officials, business uh, executives, as well as people uh, on the ground. And uh, what I found, particularly with the um, people in, in the for-profit uh, sector and in government, was that the, they acknowledge and recognize problems and so forth. And the logjam is at the point of scarcity of values and will, not resources and knowledge. We know what to do. We have the resources of what to do. We do not have a consistent nor shared set of values or the will to sacrifice in behalf of the greater good. So the, in other words, in short, the common good isn't quite as common as it used to be. So in all of this, then you, it's a different hat, I think, but the hat that deals with banking, <laughs> obviously it, it all goes together for you. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and also all of your years of, of uh, being executive director of the YMCA up there in the Bay Area, uh, East Bay, uh, all of those come together. But um, so, so most of us don't have even one thing like what you're talking about, and you you have multiple things that you're involved in, uh, but I know for you they connect. 
Yes. Uh, they all have the same, com they have common goals. Um, but could you tell us a little bit more of the banking uh, stuff that you're doing, the stuff, uh, justice work having to do with banking? Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> well, um, uh, my role in, in the banking uh, world, I am, um, first of all, chairman of the board of Beneficial State Foundation. We are a 501c3 financial and economic justice advocacy and communications uh, organization. <clears throat> Excuse me. We um, see the current banking system as one that is uh, extractive. It extracts uh, money out of uh, the system and uh, it is exploitative. It is extractive in the sense that banking is a, is a really uh, interesting and simple uh, enterprise. The idea of banking is that the community, the crowd, is the original form of crowd uh, funding. The crowd takes its money, pulls it in uh, a, bank, uh, a bank shop, and uh, for the purpose of redistributing that money, to businesses and, and individuals so that they can produce the goods and services that are needed for the community. In exchange, we give you, the banking enterprise gives you, the depositors, a first of all, administrative services, keeping a record of your uh, transactions and giving uh, facilita facilities like checks and those kinds of things to get your own individual business done. And in addition to that, we give you a little bit of a return and that little bit is getting smaller of a return on the money that you put on deposit with us in the form of interest. We make our money by selling the money that you deposited. So you put in a dollar uh, Sean, we manage that dollar for you uh, this month by uh, automatically paying this bill, that bill, or uh, processing checks when you write them and so forth and so on. At the same time, Nick comes in the door, wants to start a um, uh, grocery uh, stand or something and uh, needs uh, some money. So I've got a dollar on deposit for from Sean, uh, and I promise to give Sean 1% a, uh, uh, a year on every dollar that, that, that she gives me. <clears throat> Nick comes in, wants to borrow uh, a few uh, dollars for his business. I agree to sell Nick uh, a dollar, and for every dollar that I sell, uh, to Nick uh, in, in the form of a loan, he's going to pay me back a buck four cents, dollar and four cents. I'm going to give Sean a penny of that. I'm going to take three cents of that myself to uh, defray my cost for the administration and the buildings and so forth and so on that it takes me to be in the banking uh, business and then invest the rest wherever I possibly can to make some profit. The current, seemingly a good uh, uh, system per, uh, put together by our friend, Alexander Hamilton, 
long time uh, uh, ago, and it's a reasonably uh, a good uh, thing. However, the finance industry has uh, become a extractive in the sense that, okay, I take Sean's deposits, I become reasonably restrictive and tight in who I lend uh, that money to, and by way of legislation and so forth that has allowed me to do a lots of other things, like instead of only loaning that money to other members of the community, the government has allowed me to take Sean's money and invest that money in speculative investment to make a profit for myself. So, I can take Sean's uh, dollar now and uh, invest not in Nick's business, but invest in, let's say, oil and fossil fuels, which will return me a lot more money. I'm not loaning it, by the way. And so the fossil fuel companies and so forth are not guaranteeing me that I'm going to get my money back. I'm just hoping that they will, and because I'm gonna get back a lot more than the four cents that Sean is gonna give me, I'm gonna get back 25 cents on every dollar. But in the process, depleting the earth, I am uh, supporting the exploitation of workers who uh, are involved in hazardous work that is hazardous uh, to their health uh, and safety without the corresponding benefits that they need to offset that and so forth and so on. So a very uh, simple and slightly exaggerated, not really exaggerated only in the numbers, um, uh, example of what I mean by extractive. And that goes on in so many uh, different uh, ways, whether it is uh, manufacturing, where we do offshore manufacturing with child labor that uh, allows me to make a 30 cent return on um, every dollar and so forth and so on. And so it is both extractive and exploitative, extractive uh, uh, in the earth, extractive in terms of uh, people and exploitative in terms of making it difficult and expensive for people who need um, access to capital, making it very difficult and very expensive for them to get it if they in fact get it at all. Well, our view in when we started uh, the foundation was to say, well, we don't believe that um, banking needs to be uh, that way. There is a way in which <clears throat> we can focus on uh, what we call a triple uh, bottom line instead of simply the single bottom line, which that previous model, the model that I just described is based on a single bottom line and that is economic return and profitability to shareholders. Well, what about economic, uh, what about a triple uh, bottom line that looks at preservation uh, of the earth, that looks at the uplifting and economic development of people, 
and that looks at social justice, which is very closely tied to um, the uh, people piece. And uh, the third one being uh, food sustainability, because there are so much, there's so much hunger and there is so much in the way of the production of food that also is uh, deleterious to the preservation of the earth. And we all know that that's wrong. All you have to do is read the Bible. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, God, for all intents and purposes, uh, created agriculture. Somewhere I read that you know, there were seeds bearing, fruit bearing seeds and producing after their own kind. And there were all manner of things that were integrated into the natural life cycle and constantly reproductive life cycle uh, of the earth that is being disturbed for profit. And as a result of that, many people are going hungry. Many of those people are the same people that help to extract uh, this food from the earth for profit for other people simply because they don't have any choice to uh, live. So we decided, we believe that there is another way to go uh, about banking. The first one is instead of having shareholders, why don't we theoretically, since the idea of banking at first was about crowdsourcing, then why don't we return and have ownership grounded in the crowd? So therefore we, as Beneficial State Foundation, a nonprofit 501c3 for the common good, decided that we would start a bank. Now, uh, that wasn't uh, just a whimsical discussion uh, we were very fortunate to have, as founders of Beneficial State Foundation, some people who were uh, exceptionally wealthy, who could afford uh, not only to dream uh, and uh, tout the idea of justice, but also finance uh, the idea of justice. So we started a bank. We knew that simply advocating for during doing research and doing traditional advocacy would not be enough to change the banking system. And our, our motto, for example, at the, uh, our motto and mission at the foundation is to, to change the banking system for good, both for good purposes and for good, finally, ultimately, and unequivocally forever. Uh, so we decided that the best thing to do would be to start a bank and to prove our banking model that it could in fact be done and be a profitable institution that people could trust and rely on to do good banking that, that uh, protected uh, and grew uh, their assets at a reasonable uh, rate, preserved the uh, earth, helped to uh, create a sustainable food supply and advocate for justice in the marketplace at the same time. So we started Beneficial State Bank. That was in 2007. So we are now 13 uh, years old. We are $1.7 billion uh, now, which 
uh, is categorized as a major bank along with all of the trillion dollar banks, which isn't quite fair, but fair, but that's okay. Um, and um, so we operate a bank uh, according to that model. We operate in Washington, Oregon, and uh, California. Um, we do traditional uh, banking. We bank uh, on the commercial side and we bank only businesses that do positive things for the environment, food sustainability uh, businesses, fair uh, and affordable housing uh, businesses, alternative energy businesses. Those are the major areas where we bank commercial businesses. Uh, we do not uh, bank extractive uh, businesses, no gas, gas and oil, no weapons, uh, and the, the various other uh, categories that we have for um, uh, what, what we call ESG, environmentally, socially, and governance uh, categories that are doing positive uh, things that fit into our business model uh, line. Uh, we've grown from 2007 uh, to now to $1.7 billion using that model. In our 10th year, we became, we turned profit, which proved the success of our model. <clears throat> In the meantime, and that's on the banking side. By the way, on the banking side, now, we, uh, the Beneficial State Foundation is the 99.2% owner of Beneficial State Bank. So we're, I'm the chairman of the board of the owner ownership unit of, uh, the, of the bank. Um, and I serve also on the bank's board of directors. The bank, by the way, is not a nonprofit bank. We are a for-profit uh, bank regulated like everybody uh, else and so forth. On the banking side, I am obviously a uh, director of the bank because I'm the largest shareholder, and I am the chair of the compliance unit of the bank, which means that I deal directly with the regulators that regulate banking. The primary regulator of banking is the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and they have a right to because they guarantee your deposit, Sean. So up to $200,000. So if they're the ones who are providing the insurance uh, to that, they have a right to say, here are some rules and best practices that I want you to follow to protect Sean's uh, money. For example, the, the, the favorite thing that I learned from them when I first began to do these examinations, they have they come and they examine the bank every three uh, years. And as a matter of fact, we're preparing for one in June right now, the major one. Um, and they would always tell me, well, don't forget, it's not your money. It's the depositor's money. And that's why we're, we're sitting here because it's the depositor's money. That money belongs to the public. It is not yours. 
and so we are here to make sure that you don't mess up the public's uh, money so that we don't have to pay the public back for your mistakes. That makes all the sense in the world. So the uh, uh, Beneficial State Foundation then in the pursuit of changing the banking industry for good, we have a business model that is the, the primary mouthpiece for what we wanna see in banking. There are, uh, and we do that by, first of all, again, consciously making sure that we are not involved in financing any extractive industries. Secondly, making certain that we are located in areas that are underbanked. Thirdly, proactively and intentionally seeking out people who have been undercapitalized and providing them and doing an underwriting model that allows them to get access to capital at a fair price. We are able to do that because our shareholders, quote unquote, are a nonprofit uh, foundation. As chairman of the board of Beneficial State Foundation, my total salary is zero make no money uh, as chairman of the board of the holding company uh, of the bank. I am a paid director of uh, the bank because I have a fiduciary responsibility there to make sure that uh, shareholder deposits are taken care of uh, well. So, um, and if I'm going far afield or there's another question that you wanna ask me at any point, do so. because. I could talk about this stuff kind of whimsically uh, uh, forever because it's been quite fascinating. I had no background in banking uh, whatsoever. Uh, a fair amount of, of financial management having uh, managed pretty large nonprofits for all of my uh, career, but no uh, interest in, or no perceived interest. Uh, in banking. But anyway, let me tell you a couple of things that we are doing from the foundation uh, standpoint that fit into the justice motif and how that relates to me personally. As I look at uh, finance uh, and uh, so forth, money and theology, Bible and so forth and so on, it is perhaps the single most uh, mentioned topic in the Bible. Uh, it's a lot of things about money, wealth, possessions, and so forth and so on. The thing that is very compelling uh, uh, to me and is my motto and, and framework uh, from, a, from a theological and a ministry perspective as I work in the justice, in the economic justice space, is when the um, Council of Jerusalem was about to send Paul out to the Gentiles. And uh, Paul says, but there was one thing that they asked us to do, which was do not forget the poor, which I was more than happy to do, that there shall be no poor among them, that there should be no poor among them something that I was more than happy to do. And so in my mind, uh, as I approach um, economic justice 
or, or economics in general, uh, that is the thing that rings through my mind that there should be no poor uh, among them. That means that everybody, doesn't mean that everybody has the same thing, but that everybody has access to the things that they need because poor is when you do not have, there is an imbalance between what you need, the essential things that you need to live and have uh, a dignified uh, life of uh, opportunity and uh, dignity and well-being when there is a gap between what that is and what you have access to, that's poor when, when there is a substantial gap. And so there should be no poor among you. So that's the framework uh, that I bring to the work uh, that I do in the economic justice space that shows up in a couple of major projects that we are doing at the foundation this year. The first 10 or 11 years of the foundation, we were watching uh, the bank and watching our investment and learning and supporting uh, the bank again and watching our um, uh, investment because the foundation is financed by the profits that the bank makes. The bank makes no profits. We don't have uh, any, uh, any money, at least in the early days, uh, that was uh, the case. So now, as I said, in year 10, we did begin to uh, make money. And so that means that the amount of support and help that the bank needed from us to assist them with uh, research and development, marketing, and a few other kinds of things, uh, we no longer provide that for um, uh, the bank. We now have sharpened our focus on if we're going to change the banking system for good, what are those tools and vehicles uh, that we will use? Well, the biggest issue, as I said before, is accessibility to cash at fair prices. Interestingly enough, the rules that are in place now by the regulatory agencies led by the FDIC, the OCC, and several other uh, OCC is Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Uh, the, um, so, and a couple of state agencies are involved in uh, that as well. The underwriting models that they have in place disfavor poor people. Underwriting has to do with the criteria that is established for lending one set of people's money to another set of people. And the notion is, is that you wanna keep the risk as small as possible. Keep the risk of, of Sean's uh, money being lent to Nick and Nick not being able to pay or not being inclined to pay that back because then I've lost Sean's money. So it's about managing and, and minimizing risk. So the underwriting model, there are two pillars to the underwriting uh, model. One is that the person who is going to borrow has 
a significant credit history and that that credit history is reasonably favorable. Number two is that the borrower has some secondary source of payment, also known as collateral, that is equivalent to about 80% of the value of what they borrowed. So if a person comes in and says, I want to borrow $1,000, well, I'm going to look at your secondary source of payment. What do you have that is reasonably liquid that can uh, fetch 800 of the 1,000 that you owe in case you default? Secondly, I'm going to look at what's your credit history? Have you borrowed money before and paid it back? Have you do you own things uh, and, and have some documented uh, history of reliability and low risk? Well, there's an old adage that says that in order to borrow money from a bank, you have to prove you don't need it. That's pretty much true. That's the current underwriting. Oh, that model. makes so much sense now. Yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that particular system doesn't favor people who have been underbanked historically. There are in this country 40 million what we call credit invisibles. That means they don't have much credit to speak of or they have no credit or they have very bad credit, very bad credit. So. <laughs> that, that's more than 10% of the population, by the way, in case uh, listeners are calculating those numbers. 40 million people out of conventional uh, banking system. And those uh, like your credit score and you know what, what your asset base uh, looks like, the FDIC and other regulators have determined that that is the best way to determine risk and credit worthiness. At Beneficial State Foundation, we are challenging those assumptions. And we say, we don't think, we think that those are indicators and somewhat valid, but they are not the only way to, or even the best way to um, evaluate risk and certainly not the best way to determine what we have changed the language on them. They ask for credit worthiness. We ask for trustworthiness. Not credit worthiness, but trustworthiness. Who's trustworthy? And how do you tell trustworthiness? It's not by Equifax. Equifax doesn't know Nick. Equifax doesn't know that Nick's got uh, a 15-month-old uh, baby that he loves uh, dearly and is doing all that he can to set a foundation for uh, that child will, uh, that will allow that child to grow up healthy, that will allow that child to grow up safe, that will allow that child to go to uh, a good school, and so forth and so on. The, Equifax doesn't know that Nick hasn't missed a Sunday of church in 15 years and that there are people in his um, 
Christian congregation who know, love him, vouch for him, and support uh, him, whom Nick would not disappoint by jilting on a loan. Equifax doesn't care that Nick has never missed a utility payment, a water payment, phone bill payment, but they will know that if he ever misses one of them, because that will go against him. Go for him? No. Go against him? Yes. So, uh, but if Nick had just graduated from quote unquote prestigious business school and has an MBA, great idea about uh, a new, the greatest next new venture that is gonna get an IPO probably sometime uh, soon. Uh, he doesn't have any credit either, but his family name looks pretty uh, good. And through college, he has been able to, that, that counts uh, on your profile points on your credit score. He's been to college, he's got an MBA, no credit, didn't have to work, didn't have to struggle, and so forth uh, and so on, but he's got an MBA and a nice little briefcase. And he comes to beneficial uh, state and says that, you know, I, I, he knows how to do a spreadsheet. He knows how to do all of those uh, things. I call them Bobby briefcase. And they come in and they get, he's able to get, because he scores high on um, his uh, score, he got uh, one of those credit cards that they set up those tables at universities all the time for the outgoing graduates and give them based on what they think that they're going to do a nice credit line. Uh, and all they have to do is go across the street and buy a football ticket and pay it off or whatever. And they've got ding, great credit score. But he, Nick's been a uh, member of a frat and uh, mostly kegging a lot <laughs> at school, but his credit profile uh, looks nice. And his family was able to buy him a car that he owns title free, has not made a payment in his life, but that's an asset that is his free uh, and clear. He is able to get alone for a half a million dollars, hasn't worked a day in his life yet, on an idea. And because he knows how to access the system with P&Ls and, and balance sheets and forecasts and so forth and so on, we give him a half a million dollars. He and his dad have been at war about the trajectory of his career ever since he was able to talk about careers at 10 years old. So will his dad speak up for him about his trustworthiness? Eh, call his mom, his dad says. You know, she loves him. <laughs> you don't? Uh, not really. But anyway, <laughs> you get my point. I'm far more worried about Bobby Briefcase's trustworthiness and integrity than I am Nick's. Nick can't make it on the two pillars that his credit score and his credit worthiness is judged on, but Bobby Briefcase uh, is. So Bobby Briefcase gets a half a million dollars for 2% interest. Nick has to beg me on his knees for $2,000 to get a used car that I'll give to him at 11%. Whoa, are you kidding me? So. 
we are challenging uh, that and we're saying that there are another set of criteria that we can look at and another set of indicators that we can look at that first of all help to reveal to us the identity and dignity of the human being that Nick is. And that we can actually calculate that and quantify that. We uh, bought uh, about our seventh year in business, we bought a bank in Los Angeles called Pan Am Bank. Most of the customers at Pan Am Bank are a Latino, uh, it's located in East LA, uh, a Latino, and they need to borrow money for one, used cars, two, furniture. And most of them are what we call pre-prime borrowers, not subprime. Human beings are not sub anything. They are pre, they are on their way with help. They're on their way to the fulfillment of their full humanity that God bestowed upon them. So we call them pre-prime borrowers. That means that their credit score now is below the threshold that is considered prime. So we've had an opportunity to get to know a whole host of borrowers. We know their patterns, we know their spending patterns, we know their income flow and their outflow uh, of cash. And we also know them by way of the relationship management that we teach our bankers, our beneficial bankers, um, that they are trustworthy people, honorable uh, people. And uh, the last thing that they would do is jilt us on a loan. Because number one, I need my car. I gotta get to work. I've gotta get to work. Number two, I need my name and my reputation in this community. And so I'm not gonna be the ones who are uh, jilting you. Do they have cash flow uh, challenges from time to time? Yes, and we know what they are. So rather than sitting back and waiting and saying, watch that Nick, he's gonna every single April, this guy misses a payment. Well, okay, genius, if you know that Nick's running short on cash in April, why don't you call him in March and say, hey, dude, notice that you've been running short uh, on, on cash, that your cash flow thins out. Uh, if you don't mind, explain that to me uh, a little bit. And we find out what happens then is that there's some family tradition or something that is going on at that particular time where I have to spend money for something else and things get really tight. Well, hey, Nick, would it be helpful for you if we skip April and you get back to me in June and at least pay off that car payment? Uh, you got to stay consistent with the uh, May and June payment, but we can split that April payment from June, July and August. Will that help you at all? Oh yeah, it will. So number one, I don't have to write down that loan because, uh, or take back the car because we're in the banking business. We do not sell cars. If I wanted to sell cars, I would have opened up a car lot. We sell money and relationships. So what I want is you to pay me back my money not to own a used car. I've got a used car myself. So uh, we develop relationship uh, uh, with Nick, know something about Nick, 
proactively reach out with Nick and say, let's be in partnership so that you can keep your car, honor your family traditions or whatever obligations that come up that are equally important uh, to your family and readjust uh, that payment. Will that work for you? Yes. Yeah, and, and that seems to really kind of address kind of the, the issue of reparations because a lot of those folks can't even get into the bank to begin the process of having to beg for, you know, the 11% loan for the $2,000 for the car. And so it's almost as if holistic banking, maybe as a catchphrase for that, uh, already begins the process of addressing that perennial problem. Of course, it's not, you know, but could you speak kind of to that? Because it sounds like by having a more open and holistic framework for interacting when it comes to economics, it seems like that already begins the process of addressing kind of reparations and historic injustice and all of that. So would you mind speaking to that a little bit? I think that's kind of where we're going in, in this conversation. I'm really fascinated to see how you're kind of forming this sort of culture even and I, I don't know just would you speak on that please yes um good question uh yes and it it, it does and i think that um um on the particular subject of uh reparations and there is some uh, efforts there's a lot of activity going on in that particular uh space we're involved in those discussions and i'll talk about those a little bit different but the idea of reparations is based on uh the notion again that injustice has occurred and amends needs to be made not by the person who has been harmed but by the people who have either directly done the harm or have benefited from uh, the embedded harmful practices that have not been uh, addressed uh, at all. And so you are absolutely uh, right. We recognize that harm has been done and um, uh, there is an, a whole class uh, of, of people that have been historically directly for lack of a better term, just robbed out of uh, resources and opportunity, period. End of story, don't need to dress it up and, and, and color it with other kinds of words. They've been absolutely robbed. Uh, black people, uh, Latino people, Asian people, Chinese in particular, and the railroad, the building of the railroads and so forth uh, and so on, absolutely robbed of uh, opportunity, land, and uh, housing and so forth, uh, and even lives uh, to a very significant um, degree. And so uh, our philosophy, and I like uh, uh, the uh, term as a secondary term, holistic banking, beneficial banking, uh, you, you can tell there's a, there's some uh, branding involved in that. <laughs> so I'm obliged to say beneficial banking. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Most of, uh, interestingly enough, most of uh, my colleagues, they are very self-effacing and inclusive kinds of people who say, well, we don't wanna be out there like we're the only ones doing it. And um, oddly enough, I'm the preacher, but I'm the hardcore businessman too, because uh, you know I've had to for 30 years make sure people get paychecks, <laughs> um, and I'm the one that says no, 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 uh, and I keep um, attributing it to 
some religious person that said, if you don't blow your own horn, who will? And I'm not sure if, it, I, I keep saying that it was a Pope and I'm not sure if that's true or not, but um, I'm Baptist, so I don't have to be accountable to the Pope and I guess I can get away with that. But uh, nonetheless, um, he obviously didn't blow his horn, horn enough because we don't remember who said it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But yes, the, uh, uh, there, there, there is the acknowledgement uh, again, and you can see the carryover of this acknowledgement of harm having been done, both in the work that I'm doing in banking and in the work that I'm doing uh, in SPUR in uh, urban planning. And without uh, uh, boasting, uh, this is the thing that I bring into those kinds of discussions and that people welcome uh, that because other people somehow, I have the cachet of being both uh, an ordained Baptist uh, minister that everybody knows that's where uh, I'm coming from, as well as a credible business uh, and civic uh, performer by way of the opportunities and career calling that uh, God has given uh, uh, to me. So I do freely get to bring up these kinds of uh, things, including biblical references. I just let people know when I'm about to, that, you know, I let them know I'm about to go Baptist on you. So mostly they know that means uh, get your checkbooks ready because I'm going to ask for some money. Uh, you know, that's what we do. The offering's coming. The offering is coming. That's what we do. Uh, I wouldn't be a preacher if I couldn't Pass, ask. Passing the plate. And that's right, if I couldn't ask for an offering. So yes, the idea of reparation is in, uh, in, embedded in, the, uh, in both of those uh, matters of uh, work and very much so in the, uh, in the banking uh, piece that we do as well. Now, specifically, I wanna talk about the efforts that I and the foundation, the foundation hasn't really taken its own position on where we will go in banking. Most of what I will talk about now is where I have uh, been at tables and represented uh, lowercase represented uh, the bank in discussions. A lot of people, there's a lot of discussion and a lot of debate going on about uh, reparations for uh, Black uh, people. And there are a lot of questions that have yet to be resolved, starting with, okay, who's eligible? Is it only the descendants, provable descendants of uh, enslavement? Or is it everybody who's got uh, the right pigment? How much would that be and what would it look like? Is it actual cash uh, being dispersed uh, to people? And how much is owed? How do we know how much is actually owed to this reparation effort? And who's gonna pay for it? Because if it's, the government, then that means even if I'm gonna get some, I'm gonna pay for it too, because I'm a taxpayer. So, hmm, that doesn't uh, make sense. So I did a lot of thinking and a lot of talking uh, and so forth and so on. To me, the greatest uh, 
measure of the economic deprivation and injustice that has been done as it relates to African-American enslaved people has to do with the fact that we have been denied the opportunity to acquire and transfer generational wealth. Generational wealth in the United States begins, and in, in a capitalist uh, society, begins with the ownership of private property. And private property, of course, can be a lot of things, but when we talk about it, uh, I reduce it down to land. Uh, that is where the most visible, tangible, and documentable deprivation and oppression has taken place. Black people were not allowed to uh, own land. It was codified by the government on more than one uh, occasion going back to slavery and um, uh, coming forward. So my focus has always been on the idea of land that and land uh, uh, acquisition and the transfer of that land from one generation to the next the opportunity for that land to appreciate and uh, so forth uh, and so on. Also, we can look at, we can, we can, we can make some, some estimates of, of how much uh, that, that is worth uh, and so forth. We also can, again, look at various laws and practices that have been in place for a very long uh, time that have deprived deprived people, Black people in particular, of uh, land ownership and uh, so forth. We can also document favorable practices that have taken place in favor of the dominant uh, population in uh, the country, uh, white folks, uh, and how they have been able to acquire uh, land. So in other words, we, we uh, as I sat in the early discussions and we always go around and around and around about, okay, who is eligible? How much are we talking about? What are we uh, talking about? It has been pretty speculative and emotional. It's like, well, they owe us because we built this country. Okay, how much do they owe us? And for what building, what part of, uh, this uh, country, do we get a you know 25% share of all of the wealth that has been generated in the country and why and how do we justify that? So I begin to say, well, we've gotta be able to say this in sane terms. So my theory of reparations has to go with, let's look at the, uh, um, practice of depriving people of Black people of the ownership uh, of land. Let's look at who deprived, how much deprivation uh, that they were. For example, if we say that there were, were um, 4 million people involved in uh, slavery, and it was not that uh, many people, uh, and uh, that each, that you know, half of them were adults. And for the 40 years from 
18 or, or the 70 years from 1865 to 1935, two million African-American people were deprived the opportunity to own land, what would that look like if in fact they uh, were each given the alleged 40 acres uh, and a mule, which by the way, don't forget, was a proposition that black people didn't ask for William Tecumseh Sherman, General William Tecumseh Sherman is the one who proposed that, then welched on it. So talk about creditworthiness <laughs> or reliability and trustworthiness. Okay, we can go all the way back uh, to that. But 40 acres and a mule is probably a bit uh, much at this particular uh, time. So let's, let's, let's downgrade that, what we call downgrading in the, um, in the banking business, let's downgrade that to an acre. So if 2 million people had been given an acre of land in 1865, or maybe at the 30 year uh, point, right at the turn uh, of the century, how much would that have been? And what could potentially that be worth today at whatever rates of, uh, escalation and inflation, we would want to uh, apply that. So uh, I don't, I've got speculative numbers around uh, somewhere, um, but that's not uh, the point. The point is, is that we can talk about tangible uh, ways of evaluating what rep a reparation, a pool of reparation dollars could look like. The second thing is, big thing is, who's gonna pay for that? Well, again, if it's the federal government, good luck. We will all be dead for a very, very long time before the government could agree uh, on that. But who benefited uh, from that and who perpetuated that system? Interestingly enough, it was the banking industry, banking and insurance, because they financed, <laughs> number one, human trafficking, the trafficking of human beings. Slave owners were able to collateralize human beings in exchange as, as loans and so forth. And there were times in the lifetime of uh, banks, starting with Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, in which they owned a whole bunch of slaves because people defaulted on loans. They took that as collateral and when they couldn't pay, they gladly took human lives in exchange for that and made substantial amounts of money for that. They underwrote the loans, they granted the loans and they deprived black people of those loans as well. So they, more than any other industry, going all the way back to the beginning, have benefited from that. So in our estimations, they should be prime targets for paying that uh, money. And very highly documentable, very highly documentable uh, because they had deeds <laughs> and credit statements for the slaves uh, that they enslaved and so forth and so on. There is a man in, I wanna say he's at the University of Maryland who has done a tremendous 
amount of work. I'm sorry, I cannot put my hands on the book right now. If you saw my office, you would see why. Uh, nor can I think of <clears throat> the actual name of the book uh, right now. I will send that uh, to you at a later time. But my um, purpose in wanting to refer to him specifically was he's an economist. He and his wife uh, have written a book after about 10 years of research on the subject of reparations and what is the, the cost? What is the, the price tag for that? And he, his formula is if we were to take the number of slaves, people that were enslaved, starting at about, it was at the end, uh, about 30 years after the end of the Civil uh, War, or maybe 20 after the end of the Civil War. Um, and we associated a wage with the number of hours that those people continued to work under legalized slavery <clears throat> up until the first legislation in, uh, that was nationwide legislation that prohibited legalized uh, slavery, what would those, what would that original corpus be? And then looking at um, that corpus growing simply by way of a compound interest uh, principle at a minimal amount of interest up to today, how much would that be? His estimate is between four and seven trillion dollars. Four to seven trillion dollars. Uh, Most of the other economists that are working on this question and have delved into it at all consider his the most credible effort um, to enumerate how much uh, slavery costs and how much is owed just in terms of hard backbreaking uh, labor. Not what they made off of it, but if you just paid these people, how much money would that be? Four to seven trillion dollars. Uh, now with that as uh, um, a basis, that would equate to, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of $281,000 for every black person in the United States as of the uh, 20, when he wrote the book, it was the 2010 uh, census and about the 2015 refresh of the 2010 census would be about $281,000 for every man, woman, and child who is categorized as uh, Black, traditionally uh, Black, meaning they were of African descent but born in this uh, country. It doesn't try to account for the entire African diaspora. And that is roughly about six, six to eight million uh, Black people uh, in, this, in this country. So um, with that, as a, you know, answering that questions, my approach was how do we answer all of these very complicated and contentious questions as it relates to slavery? How much is owed, who owes it, and who gets it? And for 
what and so forth. <clears throat> the who gets it, we're gonna we're gonna fight about that for uh, a long time because um, because population records uh, were not entirely accurate for um, for slaves uh, and so forth for a fair period of time and because of the dispersion of uh, families and because of uh, trouble and various other kinds of uh, things, families uh, split apart, identities got changed and so forth uh, and so on. There were plenty of people who dispersed from uh, the South after having been enslaved who did not want to return uh, and associate an enslaved identity to their person when they got north and so forth, particularly more fair-skinned people. who were, were trying to say, yeah, I just made it out of slavery. How you doing? Uh, they, they weren't trying to do that uh, at all. So that's going to be a contentious uh, thing. I don't particularly have uh, the answer to that. I am perfectly satisfied with uh, the idea of all um, uh, black people, not everybody that self-identifies, but I think that there are some lines of demarcation that we can go back to uh, historically, maybe at the beginning of the Jim Crow era or whatever, um, and uh, that everyone could be entitled to some sort of cash reparation. There also, um, should be, in my mind, some common fund, quote unquote, that um, builds a cultural infrastructure. And by that, I mean um, the preservation of the development, recording, and preservation of a true cultural history of Black people in this country that we all um, somewhat agree uh, on. I think that the narrative about who we are is still unsettled and uh, uh, that there should be some effort uh, to do that, that we have a common uh, narrative and a common canon that is our story as most other uh, nation people uh, have and uh, so forth. There's also um, something that ought to be done to ensure, and again, it is um, land and opportunity that creates general, generational wealth. Uh, opportunity fueled by and ensured by education. And so on a looking forward basis, there needs to be something set aside for us to be able to look backward and clearly identify and affirm and claim who we are and some forward looking uh, fund that ensures people the opportunity and access to uh, capital. And that needs to be our responsibility because once the, once the debt is paid, all bets are off in my mind. Uh, I don't think that there needs to be this ongoing spigot that, you know, uh, I could, or one of my descendants could all of a sudden one day wake up and say, you know, well, I am traumatized. I've still got post-slavery depression 
or whatever the case might be. Like all bets need to be off and then it's our responsibility to take that, get as close as we can to the value of the uh, deprivation and enslavement of our ancestors because I personally have not been enslaved. I have been highly favored uh, and blessed and my kids are spoiled. <laughs> so, you know, they can't run around saying, oh, I think I'm, you know, I think it was the slavery that's coming through now. And it's like, no, they are spoiled. Um, not rotten, but <laughs> they are spoiled. So anyway, um, uh, something uh, on a go forward uh, basis that uh, ensures that we have, we shore up the institutions if we are in favor of historical uh, education in pretty uh, homogeneous uh, environments like HBCUs and so forth and so on, then support them and make sure uh, uh, that they can work. But even more than that, let us make sure that there is some infrastructure in place to go and uh, deal with those uh, young people who have in fact been uh, left behind and provide the extra care and attention that is needed um, um, for uh, them to be able to succeed or at least have a clear option at succeeding at higher education and full human development and so forth and so on. After everybody has gotten $281,000, I think that there will be plenty uh, left to do those kinds of things and those kinds of things would be our uh, responsibility. And so that's my take on um, um, reparations and answering those questions and looking at uh, um, property as the basis for that. In addition to, well, the 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 number that is out there uh, as it relates to human labor and so forth and so on. I think, and far be it from me to challenge that uh, number because I'm not an economist, although I'm a banker. Um, and so I think that that is good, but more significant to me is the notion of property and the transfer of uh, generational uh, wealth. And we are working uh, to, we, there are a team of people that are working, we, we only contribute money to uh, the fund to take a look uh, at that and examining bank records now just recently, um, um, Chase, about two years ago, agreed uh, to begin to have uh, this discussion and open some of its records to some of the researchers, the, the Henry Louis Gateses of the world who know how to do that kind of historical forensic, uh, historical research that come up with uh, the kinds of uh, numbers and things that um, can help us to take a look uh, at that and compare uh, those numbers. And then it will be up to scholars, activists, and uh, citizens in the African-American community to answer that first primary question, which is who uh, gets it and then what responsibility does that bestow upon us? Because there is a worthwhile discussion that often gets heated about what responsibility do we have to ourselves. 
because there, no one can deny there's been huge amounts of success and a great deal of wealth and opportunity in the African-American uh, community that has not yet been marshaled uh, for our benefit if that's, what, uh, if that's what we want. So it's a pretty complex uh, kind of thing if we are going to try to uh, resolve it in the ag aggregate with the idea that one, that will be uh, the final healing piece that needs to be done to this legacy of slavery that seems to still be um, a challenge to our community, uh, to our nation, not our, our community. Uh, David Blight from Yale wrote a very fascinating article in Foreign Affairs magazine, uh, maybe last quarter, in which he talks about the unfinished business of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And that uh, is very, very, very uh, uh, stunning uh, piece of uh, work. And that, that you know, and until, unless and until we uh, deal with that, and we see it manifesting itself right now. Absolutely right, right uh, now. Voting rights, who gets to vote? Right. What's the, you know, do the, uh, the can the federal government tell states what to do or states tell the federal government? <laughs> Here we go, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what to do and how do we right wrongs? Uh -huh. How much responsibility do we have uh, for that? You know, yeah. and uh, <laughs> Uh, it's real interesting that there's one side that says that, well, we don't have to write any because that's in the past, but they want to stay in the past because it favors them. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but if you talk about, okay, well, here's what happened in the past and you owe me, well, no, we don't want to talk about that because it's in the past. Right. Well, right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 So um, uh, that's that's really where uh, we are, there are efforts going on around the country where people are trying to make uh, amends and doing uh, the actual, I can't even remember what community it is now, but somebody just recently issued uh, payments to black citizens. Oh, I heard, I heard that too, yeah. Yeah, just, just recently. And so there are efforts um, to, uh, to do that uh, now. I don't think that that uh, is sufficient uh, to resolve, quote unquote, uh, the the major uh, uh, debate because it was unless there is something systemic, some way to address it systemically. I think that we're going to keep fighting this. Our kids and grandkids are going to be fighting this uh, to their graves. Uh, right. As well. Yeah. Right. So let me let me see if. Uh, the connection, make sure I get the connection. The connection then is that since the banking industry, since the beginning of our history as the United States has been one, to, one of the greatest benefact, no, not benefactors, beneficiaries of uh, enslaving people. Yes. Then if we turn to the banking industry, which is a very wealthy industry for that money to come from there yes um then that would be where the how the reparations would happen as opposed to being coming coming from government yes or uh, yeah and that sort of thing 
So yeah. it would be a matter of those banking industries, what, coming together and deciding that they're going to do this? Uh, would it be government saying to the banking industry that you need to do this? Or how would that work? Well, uh, uh, it would uh, be people like um, people who are, are justice uh, advocates with uh, uh, expertise in uh, the economic justice uh, space, organizations, there's, there's us, uh, there is uh, one of the leading groups is um, called Policy Link. They are located here uh, in Oakland and they are um, uh, economic uh, and social equity uh, advocates of the highest uh, order. And we are, as a matter of fact, their office is right directly across the street from the bank and foundation. Um, not even across the street, across the hallway, we're in the same building. Um, and uh, do, bringing together academics, both them and us and Spur, who is, we are dragged into this kicking and screaming, um, who have um, uh, the credibility, the history and the research capability to come up with data. Mm -hmm. uh, because we cannot simply have an emotional uh, discussion that is not grounded in tangible uh, data. Right. Then it is up to us to, and it is uh, the the CEO. She has since retired and is now the founder in residence of Policy Link. A lady named Angela Glover Blackwell, a very close colleague of mine, and me, her successor, and about five other people went to Jamie Dimon and said, "We got to talk." Mm -hmm rather have, uh, because none of us are the, you know, hit the street, have little signs and things because that's performative theater that I think makes an impact, but it's not my thing, you know, and I'm- Right, we all have to do our part, yeah. I'm way too old for that. <laughs> uh, I used to do a little bit of it, but I'm way too yeah. old for that uh, now. And so uh, it is uh, getting the leaders uh, there and considering Jamie sitting on more money than anybody else, it's like, okay, um, uh, we need for you, once you see uh, the light of this, uh, we need for you to invite others to uh, the table uh, by you taking the first step uh, yourself and bringing others to the table. So we have been able to have reasonable discussions uh, with, with him uh, so far. He of course balks uh, maybe at um, the uh, figures and would like for some of uh, the people that they rely on in the economic space to validate some of the um, uh, science and math and economics that have been applied by some of the people who have looked at this uh, for us, who have come up with the four to $7 trillion number. Yeah. So it would then come theoretically voluntarily from yeah. the banking industry, peer yeah. pressure. Yes, yes, yes. We don't see the, uh, the, the um, moves by the government right would be symbolic sure 
sure you know, we would be we would be in and I'm not even in favor of this in really difficult waters by the the government mandating to private enterprise that you have to do this or that with uh, your money. Uh, there are things that we can do. Now, the other thing, interestingly enough, the other thing that we are doing, the other major project that we are doing at Beneficial State Foundation, we've got the access uh, to credit and what we call alternative underwriting, underwriting for racial justice. It's called the URGE project. Mm -hmm. 50 people who are writing uh, putting together four or five straw man examples of alternative underwriting criteria that say you can look at these things and determine trustworthiness and credit risk as well as you can do the two pillars that currently dominate the system now. Yeah. The other one is what we call equitable banking standards. Mm -hmm. There are practices that we believe if they were practiced and applied throughout the banking system, that they would be, uh, they would go a long way toward converting our banking system from one that is extractive and exploitative to inclusive and generative. Yeah. And uh, we are working uh, on those. It deals with everything from labor, labor uh, practices, mm -hmm. um, uh, restaurant workers and workers in the finance industry are the lowest paid hourly workers in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, for that reason, bank, uh, bankers at our bank, hourly workers make 150% of an affordable wage. So if you become a teller at a beneficial state bank, you will start out at $23 an hour. Mm -hmm. 23, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's based on our livable um, uh, wage, which in Oakland is, I think we're at 1350 now, and we'll move to 15 in um, uh, 2023. Mm -hmm. We're already, even at 15, We've, we've already done 150% of $15 is 23. Yeah. And we are um, already there. And so we have banking standards and tiers in terms of banking standards. 150% of, of uh, living the prevailing uh, minimum or living wage in your um, area, that would be what we call change makers. You know, if you reach that standard, if you're at uh, 110%, I think that's called a pace setter. Uh, <clears throat> if you're still simply at the rate, you're a believer. So, uh, and we have those kinds of rankings and those kinds of standards in every area of their involvement as it relates to uh, the environment, not only their own environmental practices, but the uh, environmental practices that they extend to their suppliers. Uh, are you getting uh, stuff from suppliers who are polluting uh, the earth? Because that doesn't solve uh, the problem right. uh, and so forth and so on. So banking standards uh, and being able to include 
in those banking standards, which again are voluntarily adopted, but we will have such a robust advocacy and communication uh, campaign that you run some reputational risk of deciding not to adopt ours. Right. Uh, and um, uh, so to be able to slide into there, the acknowledgement of the banking industry's complicity in the enslavement, uh, historical enslavement of people and the economic deprivation and poverty that has resulted thereof by doing the following things, you know, uh -huh. put, a, put a plaque in your hallway, you get a one. Contribute to the um, uh, reparations settlement fund, you get a 10. So um, we've got a pretty elaborate scheme uh, worked out. It will probably, uh, it, well, it'll take the rest of my life <laughs> to get that uh, all well done, but we do. And to have a consistent group of people that come uh, to the table, because we're, you can imagine that last year, a lot of this, uh, through this past year, a lot of this work kind of went into the second drawer because uh, either truthfully or not, everybody's like, oh, we're dealing with that COVID. And it's like, okay, now, and I understand uh, that we are in business to do this. This is our whole reason for being. Another bank uh, who doesn't necessarily have a foundation that is set up the way that we uh, are, might not be able to afford that. And I get it. Right. I get it. But yeah. we have these contingencies and so forth that we have to deal with. And we are willing to, to foot the bill. And we are footing the bill for all of this work. Uh, now, not all the reparations work, but a great deal. The banking standards work and the underwriting work, both of which involve about 100 banks, bankers, economists, policymakers across the nation. We foot the bill for that totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the work keeps going. And if we keep talking about it, uh, that seems like that that would be uh, at least a small way to uh, push forward in this. If, if more and more people begin to suddenly have the expectation that we want our financial institutions to uh, take responsibility uh, for not just um, keeping our money safe or investing it wisely, but also uh, for being uh, working for the good of all people. Yes. Um, and, and then going back to what you said at the very beginning, starting with the idea of there are people who have been left behind. Yes. We start with them. That's and uh, if, if we have that understanding, I think there's so many people who don't even have the understanding that there are people who've been left behind yes. and it's not their fault. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Absolutely, and that's it. And, and uh, the starting uh, right there, and making that discussion normative, non-contentious, and beneficial. Yes. Um, um, on multiple uh, levels. And that's the first level of, um, of work. This is, and when, so, you know, it kind of brings it full circle. When we talk about how these things relate to ministry, this is preaching and discipling. Right perfectly honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> Not more complicated uh, than that. It's preaching and, and, and discipling and, and, and witnessing. That's right. Yeah. 
It really is. I feel so blessed uh, that that was my calling. Yes. Uh, yes. And it's really coming into fruition uh, now. It uh, it was not coincidental. I always say I never would have imagined that I would be uh, in banking. Neither do I have any um, particular expertise in urban planning. Uh -huh. That is not my uh, thing. I, you know, it's fairly interesting as a as a curious person. Uh, I'm interested in uh, those things. And, you know, an article or two here or there is fine. That's enough that I need to carry on uh, um, articulate conversation at, um, at a reception or something. <laughs> but uh, to be uh, actually in the driver's seat on some pretty monumental projects, as I said, I chaired the, I am chair of the um, 50 year vision for the Bay Area for, for SPUR, which is an organization that's been around 106 years. Yeah. And how that in the world that happened, I don't know, but I do know. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and, and that's just it. As people of faith, when we are living out our faith, as we mature in our faith and we understand what it's all about, then you get into the same room with other people who have other expertise. Uh, and we don't do any of these things by ourselves. Right. If we're going to make change in society, then I can walk into a room with no knowledge of a whole bunch of things, but my conversation spurs the thinking and the people who have that expertise to make a difference in a different place that I have, you know, I would never make that kind of difference. Right. But if all of us are walking around like that, like I say, deeply involved in our faith, uh, maturing in our faith, able to communicate it in such a way that we inspire other people to use their gifts and talents uh, and expertise and influence to make a difference in the world. We can make a difference in parts of the world that we never, ever thought we could you know, that we can yes. go or do or mm -hmm. touch. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is absolutely true. Well, we're thankful that you're doing that, Robert, and that you are modeling it for the rest of us. And hopefully this, this podcast uh, and others like it and future ones that we have with you, future conversations that we have with you, will help to do what you were talking about, get these kinds of conversations out there normalize this kind of thinking that this is this is how it needs to be and then maybe it's it's a part of making a difference and so absolutely yeah. Yeah. absolutely absolutely and 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 to people of faith and i would i would say this sometimes we don't see the connection uh automatically and there are even some quarters of our, our faith communities that say, you know, that's not our domain. Just, you know, a couple of more mm -hmm. Bible verses, a little bit more Jesus, we'll be fine. Right. And my response to that is, is that I'm not, don't want to demean your point of view or whatever, but the God that I see and understand in scripture and through the life of Jesus and so forth and so on, absolutely, totally and completely. And the Bible paints a picture for me of a world, of a city, of a community that has um, 
prosperous providers of goods uh, uh, and services, whether it is the uh, um, in the early uh, scriptures, the people that were making the iron and doing uh, whatever. Uh, but anyway, a prosperous economy, um, not for self, but for uh, overall, uh, clean air and water, kids that get educated uh, the right way, modes <laughs> of travel that are safe and environmentally uh, compatible and um, so forth, that God uh, seems to advocate for those kinds of uh, things, particularly when we talk about cities and we have a vision of the new Jerusalem. That's with right. The water that comes down the center where mm -hmm. people on both sides get the opportunity, trees that are full of fruit and so right. forth um, uh, and so on. So I challenge sometimes people, particularly if they push back hard and say, you know, I'm not the God that I have discovered in these pages and in my experience seems slightly different from the God that you are depicting to me the saying, whoa, don't get involved in that. Ain't none of your business. Yes. <laughs> like uh, not the same being that I'm encountering. So can you share with me a little bit more? You know, cause I don't mean to be dismissive of, of uh, people, but it's like, well, yeah, let's I talk see, about it more. Yeah, let's talk about this uh, uh, more because I see God being very much a proponent and very much in the middle and very much having gifted people uh, uh, to make contributions to that and the development of uh, uh, all aspects of the earth uh, and, and the fullness thereof. Mm -hmm for yeah. the well-being of God's people and everybody. So right. um, they're, 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 yeah. So I would like for us to be a bit more uh, open and expansive in our understanding of who is uh, uh, our God, you know, and that's what Jesus uh, died for. And uh, for us to be able, because it was perverted, <laughs> it had been gotten off track and it's like, okay, people of faith, I am going to give myself to show you the suffering and the death that comes when things are off uh, track and become extractive, exploitative, and selfish. But I'm going to come back and I'm going to empower you so that we can be inclusive and generative and well and that's uh, what it's about. And uh, the other day I was reading, um, doing my uh, devotion and I think, yeah, it's in Acts 1, 11 and uh, no, yeah, Acts 1, yeah, I think it's verse 11 when the um, two angels uh, or men or whatever they were challenged the disciples by saying, why are you standing there gazing? Mm -hmm. And then they say, that same Jesus will come again. And that same Jesus just struck me. Yeah. That yeah. same Jesus. 
It's not something different. The same, same message and the same principles and the same thing. That same Jesus. Uh, now you have to go out and act like that same Jesus. Yeah. That's what I get a chance uh, uh, to do in some pretty, what seems like unconventional, but should not be. Mm-hmm. Right. That should be quite normative uh, as well. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And the thing is, there is an alarming amount of receptivity to those discussions. Like you said, you know, the inspiration that comes out of that and something sort of that people were looking for, but I couldn't put my hands on that. Boy, right. I appreciate you having said that. And I'm sure that in the meetings that you go into, uh -huh. they're summing up and so forth and so on. And they're always saying, well, like Sean said earlier, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I agree with Sean. And you're like, okay, yeah. my, yeah. Kid, my kids don't, my spouse doesn't, but okay. <laughs> I think When's our next meeting? I'll be back here again. Yeah, I like being here. Yeah, everybody, everybody wants to make a difference. But, you know, it's the same thing when when uh, somebody says to you, oh, I don't know, 10 years later or something and says to you, I remember the time you said. And, you know, and I'm thinking, I don't remember saying that. I don't that. remember it at all. <laughs> Well, I said, you know, I said that you want to hug yourself. You're like, good job. Yeah, right? That's like, That's I said good. that. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must have been the Holy Spirit because I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Faith Without Fear podcast, a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Redlands, California. Our music was composed and written by Garrett Zambros. If you're looking for a church home, we encourage you to browse our website at www.fbcredlands.org, where you'll find our sermon series and links to our YouTube channel.